Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm John Simon. John, as you know, we have a special guest today, Rick Friedman. Hi, Rick. Hey, Eric. How you doing? Thanks for joining us for this episode. Man, there's so much to talk about because you are writing books faster than I can read them, I think. We're going to talk about your work not only as a trial lawyer, but as an author. I checked into a talk that you gave at Pepperdine, and I thought maybe it'd be fun to introduce you with that introduction that your brother threatens to give you. <laughs> you're, you're welcome to do that. Oh, good. I have it written in front of me, so if it's okay, I'll just read it. You bet. Because I think it serves as a nice introduction to your style and approach to life and law. So here's what you indicated was an introduction like the one your brother threatens to give you. Rick Friedman is reputed to be the only member of Harvard Law School class of 1979 who failed to receive a single job offer upon graduation. While some claim this was because of his poor GPA, others insist it was because of his abysmal personal and social skills. Moving to Sitka, Alaska, Rick started a solo practice and for the last 39 years has teetered on the edge of financial bankruptcy without falling in. He has lost many prominent cases. If it's true that we learn more from our defeats than from our victories, Rick has much to teach us. Yeah, that's it. 42 years now, but uh, other than that, it's all pretty accurate. You know, I thought that that would be a good introduction for you because, first of all, I know you're very wary of trying to be funny as a lawyer. You don't want to be too free and loose with courtroom humor. But also, I think what I sense in a lot of your writings is a lot of people looking from the outside in see a lot of your big victories. You've had many multi-million dollar results, and it might look easy on the outside to those who don't know you and what you do. I don't think it's easy for anyone. I think if you look at any successful trial lawyer, one of the first things that would strike the average person is how hard we all work. Even to get moderate success, I'm not talking about the celebrity trial lawyers, but just moderate success as a trial lawyer is really hard work. I don't think there's a way around that. You have won some of the largest verdicts in the United States in personal injury, defamation, insurance, bad faith, business torts. I'm not going to go into that in more detail because I'd invite listeners to check out your website at Friedman Rubin. You have a law firm. I see you have three locations in Seattle and in Alaska still. Also, you're a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, where I assume you might have met John Simon, if not before. Yeah, that's where I met John, for sure. I know you're a very accomplished trial lawyer, but your books go into a different direction often. The phrase inner lawyer keeps occurring to me. You know, what's going on on the inside, especially your last two books in 2015 and 2020. There seems to be an evolution there. And I don't know if maybe you want to give us a bit of background on your journey as an author. Back when, geez, must have been in the mid-90s, I was doing a lot of CLEs, and I was doing a lot of trials, and I was struck by how a lot of times in trial, something's going on that's hard to put your finger on. You know, certainly the best lawyer doesn't always win, and with some regularity, the best facts don't always win, and 
I was trying to put my finger on that. And I remember coming out of a CLE where I had tried to talk about that a little bit. And I was thinking someday I want to write a book called Zen and the Art of Trial Lawyering. But I knew nothing about Zen and still didn't know all that much about trial lawyering. So, but the idea sort of came to me then. And I didn't do anything with that idea. You know, Jerry Spence frequently, when he was lecturing, would say, anyone in this room can beat me. Anyone can beat me if they're more real than I am. And, you know, I used to think that was hyperbole on the part of Spence. But I think what he's getting at is that there's something else going on in the courtroom besides what we're taught, besides what's kind of on the surface of things. And eventually I stumbled across a description of Aristotle talking about rhetoric and how there are three types of persuasive techniques available, let's say categories of persuasive techniques available to the advocate. And one is logos, what we learn in law school, if not before logic. One is pathos, which is what is there that already resides in your audience? What feelings, thoughts, values are already there? And kind of the classic way of thinking about that today is the reptiles. It's a very good example of pathos, you know, what's in that jury audience and how can we use that to our advantage? But Aristotle thought that the strongest type of or category of rhetorical approach, persuasive approach, was ethos, the character of the messenger. And when I read that, then things started to gel for me as to my fifth book. But as to the first book, because you asked like my, my evolution as an author, I was just giving lectures on rules of the road. And I kept getting more and more requests, and I got tired of hearing myself talk about the same thing over and over again. And I thought, I'll just write a book about it. And, you know, by luck, I just happened to be at a CLE with Aaron DeShaw, who's the owner of Trial Guides. And he was struggling to figure out, they'd only published one book at the time, his book. And so we got talking about books. We both love books. We both love publishing. And I told him about this idea I had for Rules of the Road, and he got excited about it. And so that's what I did. I wrote Rules of the Road and then asked Pat Malone to come help and then got more and more requests to lecture on Rules of the Road, which was not my intent, but that's how it worked out. So Rick, when I first talked to you, you were the president of the Inner Circle, and I don't know if you remember this, making the call telling me that I was in or got accepted. And the first thing in my mind when I heard your name was the Rules of the Road book. And I've read a lot of books that are out there on trial practice. And I just remember reading that book and it was like a light bulb goes off. I mean, it was such a practical book and helpful and just helped you. It's like you wanted to structure your questions and your case in a certain way. And I'd go roundabout ways to get there. And it just laid it all out. I've been teaching law school for a few years at St. Louis University. And you know that's one of the three or four books I tell my students, you need to read this book. This is one that you need to read. Oh. And Rick, I will just tell you, I'm just about finished with your latest book. And I would say the exact same thing about that. I mean, it just absolutely, I would say those are two books that every law student, every law student and every lawyer I think should read. And they're just both incredible, both incredible. Well, books. I, appreci I appreciate that, John. And 
but you know, the three of us have to be careful not turning this into an infomercial. <laughs> no, no. I, I do yeah. appreciate it though. You know, the last one, Sven, I know we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but just the whole idea of thinking about it, it just made me think about what I do and why am I doing it? You know? Yeah. And boy, if the why isn't there, if you haven't answered that question, the rest doesn't matter. I think most of us, us being trial lawyers, I think we have a sense of the why, you know, we were drawn to this kind of work for a reason, but then we get sucked into it and we're so busy doing the work that the why sort of stays in the background without being articulated. And part of the point of the book is I think we become stronger advocates if we go back and revisit the why and kind of make that part of our internal engine, so to speak, as trial lawyers. That's one of the themes in the book, as you know, and that was part of uh, the reason for writing it. We're taught, you know, be yourself in court, but what if you're a jerk? And most jerks don't know they're jerks, but that we all have aspects of ourselves that can sabotage our work as trial lawyers. And that's what I was trying to get at with that book is like how to turn those things around and then also how to find the strengths and make them part of your advocacy, which, you know, we tend not to do surprisingly. You invite this next question with a a lot of your holistic talk. And I'm just curious of your thoughts about wellness. You know, how do you take care of yourself so that you're the best lawyer you can be? The job requires a ton of stamina and discipline and ability to handle stress. And I think, I think that's why we have a high rate of alcoholism and suicide and drug abuse and divorce in trial law. I think that's people gravitate to those things to help them with the stress. And of course, many of them do help in the short term. But in the long term, they're destructive. So, yeah, for me, it's uh, I'm on my own kind of, I don't know what to call this journey, but journey towards being healthy internally and externally. And at the present, yes, I meditate every day. I try to get some kind of exercise every day. But, you know, part of what I think is, I, I mean, I think, the fifth book, The Way of the Trial Lawyer, is also aimed at reducing our self-imposed stress. Because I think what I began to notice, both in myself and in others, is that a lot of the stress we experience is self-imposed, and a lot of the wounds are self-inflicted. The trial wounds are self-inflicted. And so part of that book explains the conclusions I've come to about how to get the unnecessary self-imposed stress out of our lives. Rick, one of the things I like in your book, the whole idea of this losing, there are so many young lawyers I know, they're literally paralyzed because of their fear of losing or fear of making a mistake. You really can't do what we do effectively if that's what you're thinking about. If you're consumed with what the result is going to be in the case, you know, we do these talks here at the office every two weeks, and I gave a little talk, a little 30-minute talk on losing. That was it. I said, everybody's lost. I've lost. You're going to lose. 
I said, if you're going to get anxious about something, get anxious about being prepared, right? Yeah, now, yeah. Lack of preparation, that's okay. You can get anxious and worry about that. But, you know, once you get to that point in the case, no one can control what's going to happen. If anybody tells you, they can tell you what's going to happen in a case, they don't know what they're talking about. As CLEs became mandatory and therefore more common, you know, what we saw was more and more lawyers getting up and kind of avoiding any mention of losses, I started trying to make a point of every public presentation I made talking about a case I lost. And the first time I did it, about four or five people came up to me and just said, that's so refreshing to hear that you lose and that you were willing to talk about it. it. It's like what developed in our culture was a kind of a fear or shame or something about losing cases. None of us like to lose. It's painful. It's ugly. It's really unpleasant. But yeah, I think if that's where your focus is, you're not going to be very effective. I think what makes it worse now, as opposed to 20 years ago, there are so many less cases tried. When I was a young lawyer, the first year I started doing plaintiff stuff, I tried 10 jury trials to verdict in 12 months. And yeah. how many did you lose? Yeah, six, seven. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> yeah, right. But you yes, know, I, could, I could talk about it. I won three, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and right. so it was a situation where I was the youngest attorney at a 10 attorney plaintiff's firm. And the cases that the smaller ones or the ones that nobody wanted to try, I'd get them and, and go and try them. And if you lost a case, I had another one coming up in three weeks. Yeah, you couldn't even sit there and feel sorry for yourself because right. the next one was coming down your throat. Here's the problem. You've got two professionals going at it, doing their best highly talented, and then you stir in, you know, lady luck into the process. And the system is rigged. Somebody will come out of there not having prevailed. And the connotations with the word loser are that somebody is, you know, not competent and they screw up and all sorts of connotations that make it look like somebody's not worthy of being a good lawyer, even though they did exactly what they're supposed to do. It does seem as though we've become a culture more and more focused on appearances. It's been a very crippling thing for our profession. I think it's been really, really bad. So Rick, one of the things in your new book that really got me thinking, and it's the whole concept, I'm not exactly sure what chapter it was or what you called it, the idea of plaintiffs, you know, civil attorneys seeking justice versus being a a zealous representative for your client. In other words, You know, the whole idea that do we push beyond what we think is a fair and right result in the case? Is that our obligation and do is that what we're supposed to be doing? In other words, if I have a case with my client, that's the way I was raised and brought up and taught. And you do the very best job you can for your client. Yes. Going to mediation, for instance, I've been told by a mediator, well, this is fair. And whether I said it or not, my thought is, I'm not here about fair. I'm not here to get what's fair. I'm here to get every dollar I can for my client. And is that wrong? Is, is what we're doing the right way to do it? The way I was introduced to this idea was I noticed on, I had a very talented opposing counsel from a big firm. And I went onto her website to just learn more about her and noticed that not only did she defend cigarette companies, tobacco companies, But she also prominently displayed on her website for this big firm how she did death penalty work. And then I noticed the same thing on another prominent defense lawyer, civil defense lawyer. They were touting their death penalty work. And I thought, 
you know, my first reaction was, oh, they're trying to convince everybody that they're very progressive and they're not as bad as you would think from looking at their work. The way it's set out in the book, of course, is there are really two standards in the criminal field. You know, the prosecutor is supposed to do justice, strike fair blows, but not foul blows, and, you know, see that justice is done. Meanwhile, the defense lawyer, their ethic is, you know, use any legal means I can to defend my client and keep the government from putting them in jail or putting them to death or whatever. And I thought, well, why, why is it that we in the civil world have adopted the criminal defense view instead of the prosecutor's view? And, you know, thinking down that road became clear to me that that really favors corporate defendants and institutional defendants. This idea that any legal means, fair or not, I will use for my client if that's the ethic we're supposed to live by, that's what allows defense lawyers to do all this sleazy stuff and sleep at night. It does make a difference. There is a moral difference between representing a company that makes a product that kills and injures people and is trying to not pay for the damage it's done and representing the people who've been killed or injured by that product. There is a moral difference between that. And if we pretend there isn't, we're giving away a lot of our power as plaintiff lawyers. Now, you raise the question, so what does that mean in terms of, should I go push for every last dollar? I don't feel anything, I mean, assuming the client's not a fraud and all that, I don't see any problem with pushing for every last dollar. To me, where it gets a little dicier is, okay, John, you know there are certain doctors you can hire who will say your plaintiff is injured almost no matter what. So am I doing the right thing by hiring one of those doctors? And, you know, conversely for the defense, you know, they know who to go to who will automatically say your client's not hurt, even if they are paralyzed from the neck down. So that to me is where it gets interesting and difficult because I guess everybody's got to make their own choices that way. It solves itself if you have very good lawyers on each side of the case, somewhat, because they'll get to the bottom of it and keep everybody in check and in line. But I think we're trying to get the best possible result for our client. That's what the ethical rules that we have, as, as I see them, require us to do. Right. But then the question is, what tools do you use to do that? And the bright line, of course, is, well, you can't put on perjured testimony and you can't falsify evidence. And... That's the easy stuff. So then the question is, so what would you do if you were, you've got an injury case and you need an expert to evaluate your client and you have a choice between someone who you think is going to be fair and accurate, let's say, and then somebody who is, you know, this doctor is going to exaggerate my client's injuries, going to make him seem worse than he really is. What do you do with that? That's my non-rhetorical question to you. How do you solve that problem? I think you go with the best witness. Part of it, too, is how many cases have you seen where, as you said, somebody will be paralyzed and they'll get somebody and say there's nothing wrong yes. with them? I think we see that too often, but it's certainly something that you need to be aware of. And to me, it's always about getting the most credible witness. The most credible witness tends to be the person who's going to not take extremes one way or another. I mean, that's the way it works out typically. I agree. But I think... 
the other thing that's very clear to me is that things that work for the other side won't necessarily work for us. And that from a defense standpoint, you can do things that would just be a disaster on the plaintiff side, would be unforgivable by the jury. The defense is forgiven, but we will not be forgiven for those things. And so I think the defense can get away more with putting up witnesses who are not the most honest or most credible. And just because they can do it and get away with it doesn't mean it's going to work for us. Rick, if I can go back to your definition of ethos, a rock-solid sense of personal purpose and integrity that informs all of our actions in and out of the courtroom. And I, I like the definition. I'm thinking of how you would make that operational in those moments, in those difficult moments where you're trying to decide who to hire as your expert witness and other ethical quandaries. What I believe is true is that what shapes our lives is not necessarily big dramatic events, but the little decisions we make all the way along. Do I want to be the kind of person who did X? Because I think what I'm doing is sculpting myself. I'm in process. I'm never going to be complete. But do I want to be the kind of person who comes into the office in the morning and because opposing counsel or my co-counsel's been yelling and bitching at me all the drive into the office, do I want to be the sort of person who then takes it out on my secretary as I walk in the door? Well, no, I don't. I don't want to be that kind of person. And so I do think the practice of law forces us to sculpt ourselves into a kind of person. And so that's either going to happen consciously or unconsciously. And we've all seen the results of unconscious sculpting. It can be really ugly sometimes. But what is, I think, not obvious to new lawyers or even older lawyers is that that process is more about sharpening our advocacy skills as anything else. You know, that very process of, am I going to be the sort of person who walks into my office and takes out my displeasure or my stress on my secretary, that's the same mental discipline and self-awareness that needs to be brought to bear in the courtroom. Because everything we're doing in real life is also preparation for what's happening in the courtroom. I don't think there's a way around that. I think it just, as you say in your book, it's being honest and truthful and ethical. I mean, to me, if you have a question about it, don't do it. It allows you to be more credible. It gives you energy and power. Being able to take what's bad, put it out there, you're building who you are. You're also building who other people think you are. Yes. Your reputation. <laughs> I've had situations where we're arguing a motion in a case, and it's pretty important motion on a critical issue, and you're doing research, and you find a case that's not so good, and the other side doesn't have it. I've had that case and brought it out. I did that as a young lawyer in a case. It was a pretty significant case. And I've been in front of that judge dozens and dozens of times since. And overall, I would say it's been an advantage. No question. Because every time I say something or, and then it's the same way with attorneys. All we have is our reputation. And, and that's not something we're creating an image. It's, it's who we are. Yeah. And I get the impression, John, I don't know for sure. You still do a fair number of med mal cases, don't you? Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, so it's going to use those as an example. I don't have a high degree of confidence that in most med mal trials, the jury really understands the medicine. But regardless of whether they do or don't, I think from the very beginning, the jury's searching for who can we trust here? Yes. Because I think a lot of jurors vote on this is a more trustworthy presentation. These people are more solid. I want to be identified more with these people than those people. So if you are somebody of integrity who works to be someone of integrity, and you know, this is not easy. It's like in our job, we are constantly tempted to do things that maybe we wouldn't be so proud of. And lots of little places to make little decisions that probably no one will ever see. But if you're the person who always tries to do the right thing, regardless of the consequences, and you're standing in front of a jury, that will come out. That will be that will be a presence in the courtroom. I was thinking about your book. I was out of town last weekend, and my wife and I have a home. It's out of town. It's on Gulf Shores. And I was talking to a contractor that I had met for the first time. It was a hurricane damage to the building, and we were talking about certain really major extensive repairs that needed to be done that weren't in the first bid or whatever. And I didn't know this person. And I was thinking about your your book when I was talking to him because he's telling me this is what we need to do. And I'm kind of blown away, you know, looking at the extent of it and all of this. And I'm thinking, okay, who is this person? But then I thought he made it very logical and rational, showed me why we needed to do it. And then a little emotional, if you don't do this, then this is going to happen. But the thing that carried the day for me, I ended up talking to him for a good 45 minutes to an hour about things not related to the property, just getting to know him and a little bit about his background and family. It wasn't deliberate. We just struck up a conversation and started talking. And I left there and that decision was made based on trust, period. That decision was made because the person telling me this is what you need to do, I had spent enough time with him to trust them. And Rick, when that was happening, I was thinking about what you talk about in your book. I'm trying to be persuaded of something by someone I don't know. And you know, when we walk in that courtroom, they don't know us. They don't know the other attorney. And the worst part is, at least my situation, there's only one person telling me to do this in court. There are two people you don't know telling you the exact opposites, right? Somebody's saying yes, and somebody's going, oh, heavens, no, no, you don't want to do that. So the trust is the messenger. It's the trust. Yes. Absolutely. That's what I was trying to get at in the book, obviously. But I think it it applies everywhere. You know, all human interactions, we're constantly, at least unconsciously, trying to evaluate how safe is this situation? How trustworthy is this person? I'm going to base my actions not on knowledge about, in your case, contracting, or, you know, if my doctor is telling me you need this operation or Whoever it is, a big part of our unconscious decision-making is how trustworthy is this person? I was somewhat haunted, I guess, by your chapter, The Hungry Ghosts. You mentioned that lawyers are worried about paying their home mortgages or their payroll, and it makes decision-making sometimes very difficult, combined with the pressures of the litigation itself. And those things can cause people to lose their bearings. I see your concept of ethos as a counterweight to those sorts of things. How do you deal with, for instance, the uh, media image of the hungry ghost, the lawyer who just is crass, doesn't care about the truth, just wants to get the most money and that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I think something was lost when we went from a profession to a business. Another theme of the book, sort of subterranean theme of the book is that something was lost there that we can get back. And of course, we have to make money and earn a living. But again, I think we're all coexisting in this American culture, which is really designed to keep us feeling insecure, like we never have enough. If I have a house, I need a second house. And if I have two houses, I need five houses. And then I need an airplane to fly between my different houses. And only then will I be successful. But of course, as John and I know from rubbing elbows with some of the more successful lawyers in the country, it's a treadmill that you never get off and you're trying to fill a hole with things that will never fill it. And so I'm all in favor of paying the mortgage and you know having money to send your kids to college. And I, I'm not anti capitalism or anti making money, but that's ultimately once you reach a certain level of let's call it financial security, although it's hard to even use that term in reference to plaintiff lawyers, but once we get to a point of some financial security, chasing those things, the next verdict, the next newspaper article about me, the next whatever doesn't do it. It's like eating junk food. You know, you get a momentary rush and then you feel kind of sick afterwards. What's the first step off that treadmill? I guess the first step off is to realize, and you know, it's hard to say this to young lawyers because of course, as a young lawyer, you can't wait till you get your first big verdict or your, your first compliment or the first time your name is in the newspaper. I mean, it is, there is a thrill that goes with that, but as you experience that more and more, I think there's sort of a fork in the road. You either get kind of addicted to it and you need more and more and want more and more. And, you know, just having my name in the newspaper isn't enough. Now they have to mention it five times and they have to have a good quote from me. And, you know, there's that kind of thing. It never ends. And so you either go off on the addictive route or you go off on the, okay, I need to search for something else because this is not going to fill me up. I see your newer books as an extension of Rules of the Road. So when I read Rules of the Road, I thought about being a law student and getting pummeled with these terms I didn't understand, like negligence and unreasonable and prudent and all that stuff, and thinking, wow, these are, you know, I don't understand what these words mean. Normal people don't talk like that. And then I learned, oh, gosh, we throw these terms at jurors in juror instructions. This is really confusing now. And it seemed like one of your core points is that we need to ask everybody in the courtroom, why are we here? And make it clear. And it seems like that same question, what are you here for, is the theme of your newest book. Well, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. The, the difference, I would say, is Rules of the Road is more geared externally. Here's why we're here. These rules were broken, members of the jury. Whereas, for example, the way of the trial lawyer is more focused on internally, why am I here? And the internal why am I here, I might never actually say to the jury. So, for example, back when I did criminal defense, defending, you know, I don't know, a 19-year-old kid who was selling cocaine that in Alaska he was looking at a 45-year mandatory sentence, 
I didn't think he was innocent, but my internal why am I here is the system is so unfair that this 19-year-old kid from a poor part of town who never had a chance in life is going to spend 45 years in jail for selling relatively small amount of cocaine. I'm here because that's just so unfair and I need to fight for him. That's my internal why am I here that can give me strength and purpose and focus, even if I don't say it out loud to the jury. I found your chapters on control interesting. You don't have as much as you want, of course, but I connected that up to your discussion about personal insecurities being a form of arrogance. And I thought, this is interesting stuff. I never made that connection before. You know, the older I get, the more I realize how little control I have over my life. But in the end, we're all human and subject to all kinds of weird stuff. And so you walk into the courtroom and the same thing's true. Like, I can't control the courtroom. That's just ridiculous. There's a judge. There's an opposing counsel. There are 12 jurors. All of them have their own agendas, their own beliefs, and things happening in their lives. So, I mean, there are innumerable times in trial where one juror got sick and another one stepped in to take their place, and that affected the outcome. Pure luck. And so... Yeah, I think we don't have control. And coming to terms with that is a big part of, I think, maturity, but also maturity as a trial lawyer to understand we have influence, but not control. And so how do we wield our influence in the most effective way we can? That's kind of where I come down on that. The world's not going to come to an end if Rick Friedman loses a trial. I'll be sorry for me. I'll be sorry for my client. I'll be sorry for my partners. But it's not a life or death thing. And very, very rarely are any trial lawyers involved in a life or death case. And, you know, those of us who've practiced personal injury law long enough have seen cases where we've won the case and our clients' lives have gone to hell, nevertheless, and also seen cases where we've lost a case and our clients have actually kind of flourished. And so I think part of what goes on inside the mind of new trial lawyers is an elevated sense of their own importance. And for many of that, us, that continues throughout our whole career. But yeah, I think there is a certain arrogance that comes with thinking we are just so important that us losing a case is intolerable. Us making a mistake is intolerable. Yeah, that is a form of arrogance, I think. You mentioned the uh, emotions in the mind of many people. Emotions bad, control good, logic good. How do you get to the point where you start thinking of emotion as your friend? That is such an interesting question. I mean, I'm still working on that one. I was raised in a family where emotion of any sort, joy, pain, sorrow, was considered really, really negative. And then, of course, our culture sort of encourages that as well. So, you know, I suggest a lot of different ways to get at that in the book, but I think, you know, I can't leave my mind behind. It's been in the driver's seat this whole time. It's not going to abandon the driver's seat now. So other people, I think their path might be different, but for me, it was my mind began to realize there's more to life than just what it can think and that the feelings that go on are important. And then, of course, there are lots of very perceptive books that have been written, social science books that have been written in the last 
decade that basically underline that we make all of our decisions from an emotional basis and then we rationalize them with our brains. So the mind can pretend it's in charge, but the conscious mind actually is not in charge. So recognizing that, so then my conscious mind recognizes it's not in charge and then it thinks, well, I better partner up with my heart, you know, my emotions, because they are also a really powerful force that's affecting how I am in the world and my advocacy. The metaphor I've used at times is we've got six cylinders and we're only using three and the other three are our heart. Three cylinders we're using is our mind. And when you can get them all firing together, it's a much more powerful engine. And you see that, I mean, emotions are contagious. That's why we can see somebody crying, not even know what they're crying about, and we'll start to feel sad, or we'll hear somebody laughing, and we might even start laughing ourselves. Emotions are contagious. And so to ignore that, pretend they don't exist, pretend they don't affect us, pretend we're not part of that, we're just separating ourselves from the jurors. And being separate from the jurors is not conducive to good advocacy. I'm imagining a brand new lawyer who's jittery about his or her first trial coming up. And you're thinking you got 30 seconds or so to just give some good advice to help center them. Does anything come to mind? The first thing I would say is you're not that important. Get over yourself. Because I think that's where so many of us get sucked in. But then, you know, I've got a guy I'm mentoring right now. He lives in another city. He's super talented. He's only just passed the bar. He just had a bad experience in a deposition. And I said to him, quite honestly, you were one of the most talented, innately talented young lawyers I've ever seen. You've got so much going for you. But in this job, you're not going to hit home runs every day. You're going to over and over again strike out. You're going to over and over again have humiliating experiences and over and over again have losses and discouragement and fails of all types. And that is part of this job. If you're expecting that you're just going to have one success after another, after another, you're in the wrong place. So you might as well get adjusted to that idea. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. We've been discussing a number of your works, including your most recent, which is The Way of the Trial Lawyer, Beyond Technique. That's your 2020 book. I'd recommend to listeners that you've written a lot of good stuff. Check it out. We really appreciate your generous time. I hope you've enjoyed it too. I did. It was fun. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, John. Thank you very much, Rick. Well, that's been another episode of The Jury Is Out. Thanks for joining us. Our guest has been Rick Friedman. We'll see you next time. This is Eric Beef. This is John Simon. Thank you for joining us. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune into other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom and Results Don't Lie. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.